Hey everyone. In combating the COVID-19 pandemic, governments everywhere have sought to deploy technological solutions to address the crisis, and Singapore is no different. We've got our Trace Together app. But what is the long-term impact that that technology has on our society? So last week, we published Trace Together, Learning Who to Trust in a Pandemic, which is about the Singapore government's Trace Together app. And the author, Hallam Stevens, sought to unpack the societal implications of the app. And he argued that the way Trace Together was designed and works would actually decrease societal trust. Now, the article was based on research that he and his colleague Monami Badra Haynes have done. They're both professors at Nanyang Technological University. So I thought it'd be good to sit down with both of them to talk about Trace Together, about citizen science, about the impact of such technology on our societies, and more broadly about how this technology affects and influences uh, policy-making, decision-making, about how the technology can be used by citizens as well to improve our own lives and also to resist or fill in the gaps where governments are unable or have not or cannot solve problems. Well, why don't you, you start by telling me about uh, you know, um, your work, um, each of you and the kind of work you do and then how that led you to Trace Together. Yeah, sure. So um, I'm a historian of technology, historian of science, and I mean, a lot of my work is focused on history of information technology, so the history of computing. I teach a class about the history of computing. And part of what I try to get students to do is think differently, think broadly about technology and different ways it can be used. and different kinds of effects that it has. Uh, I've just finished teaching a class called Digital Society, which is all about kind of the ways in which technology is influencing the way we live. So uh, discrimination in algorithms, thing, talking about things like in the US PredPol, where there's kind of uh, um, algorithms that are used for sentencing, for policing. Right? So these are the kind of topics that I've that I'm interested in and that I've, I've written about. So, um, you know, I mean, I think that in some sense, Trace Together uh, is in a similar kind of family, right? That it's a, a technology that is um, using different means to, to track people, but also to collect data about people, right? And um, with, I think, a great deal of uncertainty about what happens to that data, uh, and where that data might go, who might be shared with, uh, and you know, um, these these are the kinds of things that I that I think about a lot. I mean, not necessarily in the context of health, and not necessarily in the context of kind of Singapore, but um, these are issues that kind of range across you know a whole a whole range of technologies that are around us um, right now. Um, what about you, Monami? Yeah, so uh, I'm an I guess an, a science technology studies scholar. And uh, I am really interested, even though I'm an STS scholar, I'm really interested in questions of um, understanding democratic practices and uh, thinking about illiberal or non-liberal kinds of democracies. And technology is a great way to try to understand those kinds of uh, questions of, you know, what counts as 
objectivity or objective knowledge or policy relevant knowledge, what counts as good expertise, that kind of thing. Um, and for me, the way that I uh, think about those questions is through activism. And so I've studied social movements. Um, the book that I'm working on now is about anti-nuclear activism in India, specifically about how urban activists who tend to be elites try to interface with rural communities and so the, and how they're using the courts in very um, specific ways to turn these these rural polities who are considered to be violent or um, illiterate or otherwise dumb into uh, citizens, you know, how they're using the courts. And so thinking about, um, you know, nuclear policy, which is a very, uh, you know, a secretive, traditionally associated with authoritarian kinds of governance systems, right? What, no matter where you're looking, it's, uh, it's uh, how, how are people trying to democratize that kind of technology? Right. So that's sort of where I am, um, I think, fit in with my interest in Trace Together, which, again, is another sort of authoritarian. I mean, I don't want to use the word authoritarian, but it's more <laughs> centralized. It's more secret. I mean, even though it's open source and we can talk about what this rhetoric of open source and transparency is really doing um, uh, and the political uh, desire designs of that. But um to see how people are reacting and um, uh, are and are really trying to uh, think about ways of democratizing, not just how people are, but for for myself, like and so this is sort of what are other technological forms that can exist out there. Maybe we can just talk a bit about this idea of uh, technology being sort of either impartial, objective, or value neutral. Uh, because I, I know that you know in, in recent years that has, it's become very clear um, that it isn't. Uh, but just for our audience, maybe you could explain briefly about some of the issues surrounding the relationship between uh, you know, uh, technology and its impact on, say, policy making or its impact on uh, an over-reliance of technology and its impact on societies. People really think, they look at a technology, they look at this um, device that we use, and they say, how can it be anything but not neutral? How can it be anything but not just a thing, right? Why should I look at this technology as anything else? And, you know, historians of tech technology and uh, scholarship in science and technology studies has shown that in fact, the very design of these kinds of technologies, you know, people are making them. They're not made in a vacuum. Society is making them. They're designing them for specific purposes. And so these are extensions of ourselves and our flaw and our biases, our, everything that we care about and believe in, um, especially those in power, are inscribing that into the technologies that we use. And so, you know, uh, easy examples are of, you know, in the states having public benches, right? Um, to prevent homeless people from using them as places to sleep, you put up armrests so it's more uncomfortable, right? 
that is a very clear, you know, value judgment of who belongs and occupies this kind of public space or not. So it's very simple. Um, all of our, you know, and this is something Hollem might be able to talk about, you know, our, uh, our algorithms that we use. That, I think that is maybe a little bit more intuitive to grasp how algorithms and how we're trying to um, develop them. I mean, they reflect all of our prejudices. I don't know if Holland wants to talk about that a bit or any other example, but... Um, yeah, sure. Yeah. I mean, they're very... I mean, yeah, the bench example is very clear, right? That um, mm -hmm. it's something within the world that we see uh, and that we can, you know, that we can relate to immediately, um, even if we don't necessarily think about the politics behind it. Um, I mean, a lot of the kinds of things that I think Monami and I think about are really trying to think into the that the politics and the values that get built into objects. When it comes to things like software and algorithms, I think it's even more tricky in some ways because uh, often the the inner workings of these things are hidden, right? So we don't we don't see them. We see the nice kind of app working on our screen. We see Microsoft Word and all. You know, we don't see the code. We don't see the stuff inside uh, very easily, right? It's not like a car where you can open up the bonnet and look at the engine, right? I mean, it's actually very difficult to to look inside a lot of these a lot of these things. Um, even if you can, uh, often we don't have the skill. Right, we don't have the knowledge. Um, uh, so even if something is open source and not proprietary, uh, we code may not make doesn't make sense to most people. Right, we don't have the tools to read it. So that means that a lot of the values, a lot of the politics that can get embedded into these things, uh, are completely um, opaque. Right? It's very difficult to it's very difficult to see them, um, or it's very difficult to unpack them. And you know, I mean, there are I think. Um, even in the algorithmic world, there there are now. I think we have examples like facial recognition. Right? Like we know now that um, their facial recognition software, uh, at least early iterations of it, worked better on uh, Caucasian on white faces than on on non-white faces. Right, and so that tells you a lot about the designers. It tells you a lot about who these products are designed for, um, and it tells you a lot about you know different kinds of value that gets built in into technology. So, again, it's a fairly simple example, um, but you know, this is what I guess we're trying to get at, right? What kinds of values and politics get, get built inside these things, even if they're very, very invisible to us? Right. So, so with that in mind, let's talk about Trace Together. Um, and what do you think about you know, the sort of values inherent in how it's been designed, what it's supposed to be trying to accomplish versus... Uh, you know, what it actually does and its impact on society. Yeah, well, I think the, maybe the first thing to say about it is this, the fact that it actually centralizes data, right? That actually, um, despite maybe even appearances, which we can, we can talk about, actually in the end, in order for it to work uh, effectively, data about individuals has to be collected at a central point, and that point uh, for Singapore is, is the Ministry of Health, right? Um, uh, and so uh, already, I mean, this already is a kind of politics or a kind of value that is right there, right? That actually 
in order for the community to be protected, uh, the, the government has to be the kind of trusted broker in a way, right? It has to be the place where the data is centralized and collected, right? So that is, um, to me, already um, a kind of value um, in the system. Now, um, I guess we could, I mean, we could also talk about um, there, there are alternatives, right? I mean, this is important to point out because I think that, um, you know, often we think, well, what other way could you do it? Um, but in fact, there are ways in which um, you could, um, I mean, blockchain is one kind of example where in fact you, you don't need a central broker uh, in order to have kind of trusted transactions in some ways, right? So um, I don't want to kind of valorize blockchain too much here, um, but uh, certainly it's important to, to uh, at least imagine alternatives, right? I think that's an important step that we I think also, you know, something that New Narrative has discussed in the past is how our rush towards technology is very uh, alienating and discriminatory towards certain groups in society, people who aren't able to use this technology, older people, people who are disabled in some way, people who can't afford this technology, um, smartphones, you know, have a, they're getting cheaper, but they have a cost. Um, and so this actually then, you know, if, if you're going to say uh, cashless payments or something, okay, there's still cash. But if your contact tracing efforts rely on technology, that means that certain groups are going to get excluded from your network purely because they don't have access or they can't use this technology. Um, why are we rushing towards this in Singapore? And I mean, from my own experience, I can make some, I can hazard a, a certain amount, you know, a, a guess, but I'd be interested in what you guys think about and what this says about the role of technology in how this government thinks. Yeah, I mean, I think that, right. I mean, I think that um, Singapore has uh, invested a huge amount in technology, and I think that that has paid off in many, many ways, right? I mean, if you look at Singapore's history, I mean, right back to, you know, the creation of things like Jurong Industrial Estate, right, which is an investment in certain kinds of technological production. You look at the investments in infrastructure, um, whether it be Changi Airport or the MRT. Um, if you look at the investments in things like uh, Biopolis, right, there is these are these are this shows a kind of commitment to the idea that technology can solve problems, and I think that right again give credit where credit is due that that has been very very successful, right? Um, it has moved Singapore forward in all kinds of ways, right? Both I think sort of economically, but um, also in education. So I think that right, but I so I think there is a kind of history of this kind of idea of relying on technology to solve um, problems, right? But I think that um, in many ways this is perhaps now pushing up against some of its limits, right? Um, and that in fact, partly I think that um, maybe also some Singaporeans are 
uh, wary of further change, right? Some people are being left behind, as you pointed out, right? Older people in particular. Um, so I think there is some level of um, a, a sense perhaps that we don't need to go so fast, right? That Singapore doesn't need to go so fast and that, you know, therefore that maybe technology doesn't have to be the solution to, to all, the, all the problems that Singapore has. I also think it seems like Singapore has a reputation that it wants to and it needs to protect in the international, um, the geopolitical sphere, right? Of, um, I mean, I'm thinking about uh, the jewel, Changi's uh, airport's jewel, and how it came up in the New York Times places to visit to sort of this hyper real place where you know, nature and technology mesh seamlessly. And this idea of what technology can do for society, but also how it um, legitimizes itself and, and shores up its credibility with the rest of the world, as well as its own citizens, you know, I think is maybe another reason why these kinds of technological solutions are very important. But also this abuts against the trust issue, too, a little bit. Well, we can talk about that later. Yeah. Uh, I, I just thought it was very interesting you mentioned the jewel, because four weeks ago I had uh, Zakir Hussein, a migrant worker who actually worked on the jewel on this podcast. And this is sort of the, the strange thing about Singapore, on the surface at least, that we invest heavily in certain kinds of technology, but then we have very low total factor productivity and in things like construction, we are heavily reliant uh, on manual labor and um, we are heavily reliant on low wage migrant labor. And so uh, in the domestic sphere as well. So in specific areas, our technological uh, investment is very low and our productivity is very low, whereas in other areas, it's very high. And I think a lot of that has to do with then the sort of broader economic model and what faces outwards towards foreign direct investment and what faces inwards towards citizens, what, keep cost, what, what keeps costs low, what makes us attractive. Uh, and I think the other point I want to make is the sort of um, technology and this, this government loves to present all questions as technocratic ones and technology really helps with that framing because uh, you can then take what are actually very deeply political issues, reframe them as technological ones and say here's a technology to solve it and the technology uh, you know, can't be argued with. You can't argue with an algorithm the way you can argue with a politician, right? So that, to me, says a lot about... Technology is very much about how this government and our politicians think about problems as well, that you can create um, perfect solutions if you just understand it enough and everything is simply, uh, you know, um, a problem that can be solved. Politics, is, it doesn't play a role in it. Trade-offs don't there's, play a role. There's, um, in the United States, so science and scientism in particular has been used to shore up um, 
the state's legitimacy, that it's following, you know, evidence-based policies based on science or whatever. And so if you just get the science right, you get the policy right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and I think that that's, there's an analog here in Singapore that you just mentioned about the, the how tech, technology acts as a way to depoliticize um, deeply social issues, but also to... Um, uh, re-legitimize the government and say that, yeah, these are just technological problems. They're in, in unassailable, right? And they can be solved through technology. Right. And I think in some sense what we're trying to do with talking about Trace Together is put the politics back in, right? I mean, they, you know, maybe the government's kind of taken it out and packaged it in a nice app and, you know, we, we're trying to do the reverse in some ways and say, open that app back up and say, well, what is the politics actually inside this? What kinds of decisions uh, does it hide, right? Or does it obscure? Um, does it, you know, who, who does it, who becomes the kind of places where power flows to? Who is displaced by this technology? Um, who becomes obsolete through this technology? Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I think this is why this kind of... Um, that's the kind of work that, that we're, we're trying to do. I, th I think also that this, you know, this goes back to kind of, you know, Monami was talking about getting the, getting the science right and getting the, the policy right and how those two are often disconnected. And we can see this, you know, time and again that this is, um, I think this has come undone, right? There is a huge uh, lack of acceptance, right? People find them scary. People find them, you know, all kinds of um, people have all kinds of problems with them, right? Think that they're going to be bad for their health. Um, so, so what's gone wrong here? There's something has there's something that has gone wrong in the kind of process here of getting to. And I don't think that it's a problem of just um, communication, right? I don't think it's just that, that people are stupid or something like this, right? Um, they don't understand. In fact, perhaps they um, they understand too well in some ways, what some of the problems with these uh, technologies are. And, you know, if you think about genetically modified foods, there are all kinds of problems with the economic structures that they... Mm -hmm. So, anyway, this is taking us in quite a different direction, but, uh, you know, this is... I, I mean, I think it's related to this idea of what, how do politics get embedded in technologies. Well, that's actually a good point to, to ask the question. Uh, and and Monami mentioned trust. You know, why do you feel like there's a very low um, download and install rate for Trace Together? I think it was. I'm not. I'm not sure the latest statistics. It was seventeen percent the last time I checked, but that was a while ago. And I joked about this being an example of weapons of the week, right? James C. Scott. This Singaporeans can't resist in a lot of ways, but this is one way we can resist yes. by simply not taking the action that the government wants us to take. So, Monomi, why, why do you think there's such a low download rate? I mean, the, I think, you know, we, we try to point out, at least in one of the pieces we, Halim and I wrote, that, you know, there could be some people who just don't care, you know, uh, my husband downloaded the app. I told him, you know, whatever. And he's always turning off his Bluetooth. I've, you know? But um, some people just don't know too much about it. Some people just don't, you know, uh, care enough about it. It's, it. It hasn't been mandated. And sort of um, 
from what people tell me about Singapore, if you want to get something done, you have to, uh, co- you know, it has to be within a coercive structure. If you want to force people to do something, and it's kind of like um, when we teach our students to some degree, if I want them to do something, I kind of have to have, you know, it, it can't just learning for the joy of learning, right? So with Trace Together, I think there is a component where there is a lack of trust in the government and what the government will actually do, what the Ministry of Health will actually do with the data. Is this going to be a form of um, uh, mission creep that once they collect certain kinds of data on us, and it's quite, it's different from locational data. It's, it's who you have been with, you know, who have you passed along or, or spent time with. Uh, that kind of data is a lot more intimate, right? And having that kind of data collected and then given to someone else, perhaps for another reason, there is, even though there are guarantees that the government has, you know, they have all these myths that they've dispelled and said what what they are or not going to do with the data, but words don't, mean much, you know, and it's interesting to consider why they might not mean much, you know, because people are used to being surveilled, you know, um, it, in some degree, and uh, what that data is going to be used for, what that's, what, you know, who's going to be, uh, all sorts of privacy issues. People say Singaporeans don't care about privacy, but I think, um, in fact, they do, you know. Um, but can we then turn this around, right, and talk about um, how this technology, in theory, is also meant to empower citizens? And here, you introduce the concept of citizen science in your article and in your work together. Could one of you maybe tell me about citizen science and you know what it is and what it's meant so, to um, achieve and how it can help solve problems? So citizen science is, uh, have you ever downloaded the search for extraterrestrial intelligence software on your computer and in your spare time looked for aliens? So that's a crowdsourced data, taking a big, massive data processing task and breaking it down into millions of little pieces for um, individual citizens to participate in. So right now... um, I think it was called like to make use of the idle time that people have, I guess, in the pandemic. There's all of these crowdsourced citizen science projects for which the agenda is set by um, a scientist, a regulatory body, whatever. So penguin counting or citing places for solar home systems, you know, bird counting. These are very traditional citizen science projects. But um, scholars have shown that there's also a far more, you can say, agenda-setting meaning meaning of citizen science, where it has to do with conducting undone science. So this is information that would be useful uh, for citizens to have that have not been 
undertaken by government or corporate bodies. So in the U.S., uh, you can think of people living uh, low income, usually African-American communities living next to petrochemical facilities, fence line communities, having to do um, uh, collect uh, environment or, or uh, design their own environmental environmental monitoring system using buckets, you know, the bucket brigade it was called. Or in Japan, in Fukushima, people sort of cobbling together on dosimeters. So that kind of information, so in the case of the petrochemical facilities, the petrochemical companies nor the Environmental Protection Agency were doing anything about it. And in fact, they had very different standards of what constituted good data. They weren't looking at hot spots, they were looking at regional data. Same thing in, um, in the Fukushima case. Uh, and people were concerned about their food, whether or not it was irradiated, whether or not it was safe, whether or not their children could eat it. And so that kind of citizen science of using, of figuring out what your problem is, what you think the solution is, and trying to actually go forward and do it is very different from calling trace together citizen science, where it actually is the government who's using the rhetoric of citizen science, of coming together, of community-based and community-sourced, right? So it falls more under the former kind of citizen science of crowdsourcing rather than the more radical instantiation of it. Um, and I think Hallam had an example of um, it use, being used in the um, Hong Kong protests of people communicating with mesh networks, was it Hallam or something? Yeah. So, yeah, so that kind of citizen science, right? Um, so I guess the question is, uh, can, can citizen science play a role in Singapore in holding power accountable? Uh, and the only thing I can think of off the top of my head is an app uh, from a while back called Summon Auntie, which was um, Summon Auntie. Because uh, we have uh, traffic wardens, parking wardens going around back before we had the parking.sg app, right? Which has simplified parking a lot. You had to have parking coupons prepaid, displayed in your car window, and the parking warden would come and check if the coupon was correctly filled out. So the idea is if you have this app and you kena uh, summon, as the lingo goes, the slang goes, uh, you could use it to notify other people in the area that there was a parking warden on patrol and they would get a notification and they could quickly rush to their cars and put more parking coupons in, right? But now, of course, with the Parking SG app, it's made things a lot simpler for people and you don't have to prepay and pre-buy the parking coupons. But that's really the only app I can think of off the top of my head which actually tried to help citizens push back a bit against the government. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, kind of the idea of doing something that's completely kind of defeating the government is maybe too ambitious, right? But mm -hmm. I, I think where I see the, the role of citizen science is just in kind of building a little bit of space for kind of civic activism and civic awareness, right? And I think that there, just the idea that you might, and maybe it's something as simple as, you know, knowledge about uh, gardening 
or planting some plants in your, you know, your, um, on your balcony or your window, right? Um, uh, or it's about um, measuring air quality in your neighborhood, right? Which is something that people really care about, right? Um, especially since the kind of haze um, issues that Singapore has had. So these are kind of in some ways very simple, they're very simple things, right? They serve kind of educational purposes. Um, but I think they also should count as citizen science, and I think they kind of build a space in which people can share knowledge with one another uh, and share ideas with one another and share even technologies with one another that is outside of the, you know, outside of, in some sense, the government doing that work, right? It's not the government saying, oh, you should do this or you should do that. It's building it within the community. And this is not necessarily oppositional, but it's a space of civic action, right? And I think that that perhaps is an important kind of building those spaces of civic action are important steps, right? And I think this is where maybe citizen science can play some kind of a role here. Don't they already exist in Singapore, those kinds of things? I feel like there's a pretty healthy like all these nature walks and like little, you know, like guard, especially with guard. Now that I'm getting into gardening, I'm like learning all about, you know, and, and, and I guess I agree with that, but it, it, I think it's also important to think what that kind of uh, community building will nurture, like what will grow in that space. And I wonder um, you know, I, I mean, you're right. It, you can't be completely oppositional. You have to leverage what you have and figure out th that's certainly true. Um, so, I mean, right. So I, yeah, I mean, I think some of this stuff does go on and it's some of the most interesting, some of the most interesting places and I think actions that are happening in Singapore, actually, um, whether it's in artistic spaces or mm -hmm. things that are more yeah. gardening or, or food, right? Um, but I, I guess, let me give an example. So something that happened when I was first arrived in Singapore, which was about um, nine years ago, was the controversy over Booker Brown. Uh, and, um, you know, people were obviously very concerned about what was going to happen to Booker Brown. And... Very early on, um, I went to a lecture, a public lecture, uh, about Booker Brown, and it wasn't anything about, it. nobody there was saying, we've got to stop the government from doing this, uh, or, you know, it was not oppositional, but it was about the value, the heritage value of these Chinese graves, and what their meanings were, were and you know, explaining some of the symbolism um, and reminding people about the heritage uh, value of these places. And that kind of work, I think, did, in the end, have an immense effect uh, on what, what transpired after that, both in that in the particular case, but also in the general, I think, debate now. There is now... I think a genuine debate about heritage and space and what should go and what should stay. Uh, I mean, obviously the government um, and the URA still plays a huge role um, in those debates. It's not as if they've completely given up and it's free for all. 
But I think there is much more of a conversation now um, than there was uh, eight or nine years ago about this. And so I see that kind of, you know, I see that as an analogous kind of thing to what, ha what might, what could happen with citizen science. Right? That it's not mm -hmm. the kind of awareness. No, that's a great example. That's a really good example, I think. And it reminds me um, of, uh, well, I mean, an anti-nuclear activism that took place in the 50s in the, in the United Kingdom, because all of those kinds of latent networks that were created, all of those conversations that were happening, they didn't stop nuclear, but it set the stage for you know, watchdog groups to come up and, and really, and of course that meant the state pivoted in different ways too, to try to navigate these new civil society organizations that were cropping up. But it definitely was um, really important. And I think that's a really good point to think about um, cultivating the spaces. And I guess it also brings, at least makes me question what kinds of agendas and um, issues are amenable to that kind of, you know, like thinking about heritage seems to be something that the state would, oh, you know, be okay, even though they're, I know they're really well known for constantly rebuilding, you know, and um, turning over the soil so many, you know, uh, for new structures. Um, but at the same time, heritage seems to be something that would gain traction with the state. And I wonder what kinds of things would to sort of, you know, nucleate civic groups around those spaces and what kind of places would not, you know, what kind of issues maybe would not, yeah. Cool, this, this is awesome, awesome conversation. Um, I'm, I'm aware it's 11 past the hour, so um, I think the... We still, I still have one more question about sure. making trace together mandatory. But mm. I, I mean, I don't think we need to really, people can, and I also wanted to like ask a bit about your conclusion that uh, trace together would, would do the opposite of what citizen science does by you know, weakening community boundaries. I mean, I, I think the question of making it mandatory uh, goes back to some of the things that we've already talked about in terms of this, this idea of, of trust between citizens, right? That ultimately um, you, you need actually people to use this and for that you need um, trust, right? Um, you know, I, I guess we talked about what happens if people, what happens if people turn off their phones? What happens if people turn Bluetooth off? Uh, what happens if you leave your phone at home? Uh, what happens if pe many people have two phones? So you... <laughs> You know, I don't know, you switch, you take one one day and another one the next. I mean, there's all kinds of kind of very simple ways of defeating this if you really want to. Right? So mm. to me, making it mandatory just won't solve the underlying problem, which is that you need to actually have people use it and be invested in using it. And for that, I think you need people to certainly trust what's going to happen with the data. Right? What is going to happen with the data? And that is a very difficult thing. There isn't, I don't think there's a technological fix for that. Right? That requires building trust in government over a long, long period of time, right? That a track record of showing that actually you can 
trust what we're going to do with it, right? And I think until that takes place, um, I'm not sure the making it mandatory is going to be the answer. Yeah, I mean, it, it reminds me of um, a conversation I had about the fact that Singapore doesn't allow dual citizenship because the government argues that we need people to be loyal to Singapore and be very clear about where their loyalties lie. But forcing people to be Singaporean because they were born here doesn't actually build loyalty, right? Increasing your emotional bond to society, to the country, increasing the trust, increasing all these reasons to be Singaporean, that builds loyalty. And people may be loyal even then, you know, even if you have another citizenship, but forcing people to be a citizen uh, and to give up other citizenships or, you know, to, to be here just because they were born here does nothing. And so when push comes to shove, if, uh, if a war breaks out or something, you know, or if people need to uh, express that loyalty somehow, people aren't going to just because they've been forced to be a citizen. So you need to, to build that community, that, that society. So I, I think it's, you know... Really I do think yeah. the government is, I mean, the whole SG United campaign, mm -hmm. you know, uh, all our essential workers are heroes. I mean, there is the rhetoric that we're all at this sort of war effort against mm -hmm. um, the coronavirus, right? Mm -hmm. it, it is there in the air, but it's, um, it, it's thin, right? Mm -hmm. it, it's not, it's not a very deeply felt um, I don't know if anybody who watches or, or, or is, is subject to this kind of rhetoric feels that necessarily, you know? Um, yeah. I mean, and, and you see this everywhere in India. You had Narendra Modi who was uh, putting, had everybody beat their pots and pans outside the window to show support. You know, some people did, but it's supposed to be this, you know, celestial sound that reaches the heavens, you know, and it was not celestial. Yeah, I mean, we ask people to stand in their doorways and clap for nurses, but then we still pay our nurses $2,000 a month, you know, trainee nurses are paid, what, 2000 exactly. You know, yeah. we're paying them a, a fair living wage, right? Yeah, That's a better absolutely. way of showing gratitude. Absolutely, yeah. Hey, thank you so much, Thanks. guys. I really yeah, enjoyed this. This was a really good conversation. Thanks. It was a thank lot of fun. Thank you for your time. And that was Hallam Stevens and Monami Haynes. Big thanks to them for joining us today. So next week, we have Southeast Asia Dispatches, our fortnightly podcast series, bringing you news interviews and commentary from around Southeast Asia. So do tune in, check it out. And also check out our website at newnarrative.com for more stories from Southeast Asia. If you like what we're doing, please do consider becoming a member. It's just 52 US dollars a year or one US dollar a week at newnarrative.com slash join. And if you're already a member or becoming a member is not really your thing right now, that's fine. You can also donate at newnarrative.com slash donate. We really do need your support. In order to survive, we need to raise 75,000 US dollars by the end of June. And we're over halfway there, but we do need a lot more support to make it so. Thank you very much to all of you for supporting us. This is PJ Thumb wishing all our listeners a great week ahead, and in particular to our Muslim listeners, Salamat Hari Raya Idol Fitri.